Hello, it's me and only me today. I know we're supposed to have Douglas Conant today. He had an emergency, positive emergency come up. So can you have a positive emergency? Like something came into his life that was really positive and he had to cancel and address that. And so with that in mind, we've rescheduled him. He's going to be on in May. We haven't lost out that fabulous opportunity, but that means it's just you and me, kid. But of course, I don't know exactly who you are since you haven't Put it in the comments yet. So where, who are you and where are you coming into uh, us from? And we'd love to have a dialogue with you today. I'm going to be addressing a number of questions that I've gotten over the last few months uh, regarding to tend to talk about either indirectly in a live stream or frequently during my blogs and vlogs. So I am going to take those all on. I keep these questions ready and handy in case Something like this happens. We have a cancellation for the regularly scheduled live stream. So that's what's going to happen today. But would love for you to weigh in. Let me know where you're joining us from and whether or not you're cold or hot today. I live in Florida. And so uh, I've been watching the rest of the country the last few months and just going, wow. I remember the days when I lived in Colorado and had to shovel snow. And I don't really miss that. Now, come September when we're, you know, and getting ready for hurricanes, uh, then I uh, miss being in Colorado. So, uh, you know, we all have our time in the bucket, but I'd uh, love to get your your uh, messaging as to where you're from and kind of the general status of things. If you have a question as we go through today, please just jot it in the comment section. We're coming to you on LinkedIn. We're coming to you on Facebook, We're coming to you on YouTube. So in any of those channels, you should be able to jot in a comment and We'll pull it up here and we'll engage you in that dialogue. But to get us started, I'll, I'll talk about some of the questions that I get with some recent you know, frequency in the recent past. Um, and we'll kind of take them one at a time. You know, the whole topic today is about emotional value. So if for some reason you haven't happened upon me before and somehow or another you just dropped into the feed and you're wondering what's going on here, um, I am a customer experience professional certified by the Customer Experience Professionals Association. Uh, moreover, I work with leaders. That's what I do on a day-to-day -day basis on how to make a more craveable experience for humans, both inside of their company. We often call them customers when we talk about outsiders, and we often call them employees when we talk about insiders. I call them humans. Uh, we are all in the people business. So what kind of experiences are we creating for our people inside the business, and what kind of experience are we creating for people outside of the business and how do we develop more craveable ones so that we are an employee brand, right? That brand that people go to and say, hey, you want to work for a great company, go work for X. And, you know, over the course of my career, I've written books about company incredible employer brands like Zappos, for example. You want to have a great experience, go work for Zappos. And so I wrote the book, The Zappos Experience or the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. You want to be treated well as a lady or gentleman of the Ritz-Carlton so that you can then go and treat the ladies and gentlemen who come and visit you well. They are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. Then go, go check out the Ritz-Carlton for employment. So that's what I do for a living. And often then I get questions like, well, Joseph, you talk a lot about emotional value and you know, uh, I went to business school and no one talked to me about emotional value. They talked to me about practical value, the benefits and the attributes of the thing. I, or Joseph, I went to sales training. And in sales training, they kept talking to me about drive home, the differentiating be benefits of your product. And I talked a lot about emotional value. And I've actually been challenged 
it's kind of interesting. I get into some of these uh, discussions with colleagues and, and there are people who literally say, there is no such thing as emotional value. You made up the concept, blah, blah, blah. And then there are other people that I interact with who, you know, feel like they've made up the concept. So who knows where the concept came from, but bottom line, I trained as a psychologist and got a PhD in clinical psychology. And it became very clear to me that if you want to change human beings, there you have about three options, right? You can try to help them change the way they think. Uh, and if you can get them to think differently about something, it often changes the way they behave and it often changes the way they feel. Uh, that's kind of the therapists out there, the, the folks who really spend a lot of time like Albert Ellis, challenging the way we think about things, calling into question whether or not our perceptions are just stories we've told ourselves that we can reprogram. Okay, so that's one way you can change people. Uh, another way you can change people is to get them to behave differently. This is the idea that if you just, whether you like it or not, fake it until you make it, go out and do things for 30 days, create a new habit, whatever the literature is on how long it takes to make a habit these days. The reality is just, you don't have to think differently about it. You don't have to feel anything about it. You don't have to like it. You just have to do it. And if you do it over time, enough, enough, and enough, it changes who you are change higher being and your thoughts follow your behaviors. And then there's the gestaltists, uh, the, the Fritz Perls of the world who said, doesn't matter what you think, doesn't matter what you do, if I can get you to feel something differently, it fundamentally changes you. And if you think about the arts, for example, oftentimes we go to a movie or we go to a play and it changes the way we feel about something and that can maybe even change the way we perceive a particular issue. Documentaries do this a lot. Um, so enough of all that. For me as a psychologist coming through, I was exposed to some really pretty great thinkers like uh, this, this Eugene Gendlin concept called felt sense. And it's shaped the way I have emerged kind of as a consultant. So felt sense is this notion that if I said to you, Mother Teresa, you'd have a certain felt sense of the person. You probably, I assume you haven't met her uh, or during her lifetime but we have a perception of her. Um, it's a perception that has a factual data set to it. We knew she's worked with, you know, the poor in Calcutta and that, you know, she was, uh, you know, willing to go in and work with lepers and whatever. We've got a factual basis that we operate from. Um, but we also feel something about her. It just, it's in there, <laughs> you know, and never having met the woman, we feel something. And then if I said Adolf Hitler, suddenly that feeling would shift. And again, we have a factual knowledge base. Intellectually, we conceptualize what his life course was. And then at an emotional level, we have this disgust and this, this anger uh, about him. And so Genlin basically said that is the felt sense that when we say something about a person on anyone in our world, we have a felt sense about them and certain companies we have a felt sense about kind of overarching amalgamation of all of our perceptions, thoughts and emotions. And that shapes the way we behave toward them. So if I have a felt sense about Starbucks, it may change the way I go to being a consumer. Maybe I, I consume from them because of my felt sense. And maybe there's another company that I'm not so inclined to work with because something about 
them creates an emotional response. I don't have to think it through. I don't really go through this long process of saying, okay, let me unpack my sense of the thing. It just is. And it's a quick amalgamation of all the inputs I have about them. So from that, I began really championing the notion that in human experience delivery, we're trying to drive a certain kind of felt sense, an emotional sense of what this brand's all about. Do they get me? Do they love me? Do I love them? Are they a friend, a foe? And a lot of that drives based on the way people care for us and care about us. And so for me, when I talk about emotional value, I am talking about things beyond the attributes of a product. So if I have a spoon, that spoon has the capacity to dig into something and move to my mouth as an efficient carrier of a food product, right? It has limitations. It can be made of silver. It can have a certain weight, a certain handle design. There are attributes to the spoon that exist. Whether or not I have an emotional connection to the manufacturer of that spoon, whether that spoon has any kind of substantial emotional value to me or not, not, you know, if, if it's a if it's a spoon of my father's, it was carried in his his uh, mess kit. Uh, that would be a very different kind of spoon. Right. So my point here is that in everything we do, we have the ability to drive emotional value or not. And to understand emotional value, we have to understand what do people value and attach emotion to. So this whole concept of delivering customer experiences or teammate experiences operates from an assumption that we start above all else with an understanding of what they value. And then we strive to provide the product or service, not just in a consistent way, but in a way that connects to that they value. Now to do that, we have to a be authentic that, you know, we're not, faking this just to try to provoke a certain kind of emotional reaction on people because folks see through that. If you just try to look like I care about you, I do, I do. I mean, people kind of understand that that's pretty fabricated. That's not authentic to who I am. But if I do have a generally caring spirit and if it matters to you for people to nurture you, for example, and that's in the essence of my brand, and I deliver that to you, particularly at moments that matter most to you, then I'm gonna be perceived by you in your felt sense as an emotionally nurturing brand. So let's go back. I talked about the Ritz-Carlton a little bit ago. The Ritz is a nurturing brand. It is about creating the home of a loving parent. When you go to the Ritz-Carlton, they are definitely providing you with products, a hotel room, a banquet room, a dining area. And those products have benefits and attributes. They are well appointed. Uh, there's a certain thread count to the sheets, right? But beyond that, you could provide that product in a way that doesn't nurture anybody. It could be the service delivery could be very stilted and like, you have a very elegant room. I hope you enjoy yourself, right? I mean, that could be the attitude of the service providers, which would then say, well, you've been coldly introduced into a very, very physical environment. Emotionally, how do you feel about it? Probably somewhat disconnected. This is such a nurturing physical environment, but the care that was given to me as I got into the room did not live up to the room. So 
the key message I'm trying to get at here is that every brand kind of has to understand what are they driving for? What do they want everyone to feel every single time? And for me, that is connecting emotional value to your branded customer experience, which was a question I get a lot, which is what does emotional value have to do with my branded customer experience? And sometimes I even get what is a branded customer experience? It's relative. What is a customer experience? So everybody wants to deliver a great customer experience. Everybody wants to have a great sense of humor. Everybody wants their children to be smarter than average and everybody wants to be prettier than the next person, right? There is a certain wanting that we all have and customer experience excellence is on the radar of virtually every leader in almost every company. I think every frontline worker, for the most part, there are some exceptions, but almost every human being wants to make the world a better place and they found it when they woke up in the morning. And most everybody who provides service wants to provide quality service. So the notion of wanting to elevate customer experience is no no rocket science idea. The question is, how do you do it in a way that, that holds brand together, that is congruent with what a brand is all about? Because let's pretend, for those of you who in the United States, uh, let's pretend you go into a Costco or a Sam's Club. These are these are brands that are 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 all about giving you. Uh, discounted pricing based on almost a wholesale environment. You go in and get large quantities of products. Uh, the environment is very stark. It looks like a warehouse. Um, not saying that people aren't emotionally connected to Costco in a big way, for example, but but it is a warehouse for all practical intents and purposes. Um, and there's a real message that we're getting things for you at the lowest co possible price because we're getting them in relatively uh, so if you want to buy for a very, very good price and you're willing to store a whole bunch of our product, lots and lots of paper towels, lots and lots of milk, whatever it is, then you, you, know, you want to come to us. So their value proposition is largely that we're extremely efficient. You're going to get a great deal. No bells and whistles in our physical environment. If for some reason they decided they wanted to go and put a concierge up front to kind of personally help you with your discount shopping experience, it would be a horrible disconnect of the customer experience because the brand is about creating access to abundance. Please, I mean, I, I happen to go to Sam's Club because it's near to my home. Um, and gosh, you know, I, they, they were way ahead on using scanners for your items and not having to wait in line long before the pandemic came into play. But, but for me, I don't want them to do anything other than make it cost effective, have the inventory I want on hand. Uh, I know what I'm getting into there. It's a branded customer experience. It's efficient. I feel an emotional connection to them. They get me, they make my life easier. And that's what I want. It's a branded experience. And it happens to be, for me, creating a felt sense of they're my go-to uh, whenever I want items of a certain quantity. Now, that disconnect would happen if they put that concierge in, just like a disconnect would happen if I went to the Ritz-Carlton and there weren't flowers in the lobby. It would be a disconnect because they're supposed to be elevating my senses. That's part of their desirable role 
for me. And so if they took the flowers out of the lobby, I would sense that they're not caring about my olfactory or my visual sense to the same degree. All right. So to answer the question that I receive, emotional value is tied to your brand and customer experience by understanding where are the moments of cost of customer's journey where you need to pay off the emotions that you are seeking to not just the practical items that you claim to have more than a warm shower at a Ritz-Carlton and a timely wake-up call. Those are attributes of my stay. It should be that the ladies and gentlemen of the Ritz-Carlton elevate my experience so that my senses are heightened. They envelop me in a sensory experience, and that includes the way they greet me, and that includes the way they look and the way they're appointed alongside with the way that the room is maintained. All right, so that answers another question. Let's see here, uh, going to someone who's jumped in, Joe Ioni, such a valuable topic, seeing employees as a resource not used. Curious if you may cover EI versus IQ. Um, maybe a good topic to overview when people to think their intelligence is more important than their emotions in the workplace. It is important to be both, to both have EI, uh, but it's more, especially with teams. All right. Great point. As always, I love Joe's one of those guys that when he jumps into your live stream, you just get excited and you really want to run to his comments because he is so incredibly thoughtful. All right. So let's, let's talk about IQ. Um, I once upon a time read a book called uh, straight A's never made anybody rich. And I think the whole point of that book is that, you know, just because you got good grades didn't mean that you were going to be successful in life. IQ has never made anybody rich, in, in my humble opinion. I mean, intellectual is the ability to learn. The IQ predictor from a psychologist's perspective is how much effort is it going to take for you to learn something? And to some degree, whether or not you have the capacity to continue to learn, particularly around abstract thinking. Right. So if you have a really low IQ, frequently you're very concrete in your thinking. Concepts are harder to master. You know, if I tell you a joke, you'll take it very literally. You won't get the nuance of the joke. There's there's some things about IQ that are interesting and relevant. But for most human beings, like at normal distribution, the average person's kind of got this IQ range from, you know, in the 100, 108, 109 kind of category. And most folks who are in that category are fully capable of mastering incredible world around them, particularly if they develop another set of skills, which is EQ, uh, emotional intelligence, another way that it's, it's sometimes referenced. Um, and that's the holy grail, right? So a lot of this driving emotional value that I'm talking about is a function of your EQ or your EI. Um, and it really gets down to this. Some folks have developed skills that enable them to function in interpersonal relationships. And some people have mastered those skills to the high heavens. Um, interestingly enough, uh, IQ and EQ are dependent variables. There are some really super smart people who have almost no emotional intelligence. Um, not all of them. I mean, I think there is a, you know, in, in high school, you have this sense of this super geeky person who's incapable of having relationships that are completely aloof and the super smart people are incapable of, of engaging. It's definitely not true. Um, the, the same is also 
interesting. People who aren't necessarily super bright can also be super emotionally tuned in. So these variables are fairly independent and it really gets down to the fact that IQ for all practical intents and purposes. So somebody has jumped in my feed and actually thinks that I'm talking about them with regard to their emotional intelligence. What I would say, if you label yourself as not emotionally intelligent, it does a few disservices for you. First and foremost, while it might be a nice cover to say, look, I'm just not all that emotionally intelligent. It, it often causes people to view you as not very engagement savvy and it can have all kinds of adverse effects. They cannot come to you to talk to you about things because they perceive you as not capable of benefiting from that interaction. Um, it, it can put people away from you a bit. So I, there's some risk of claiming to not have a lot of emotional intelligence. It's worse yet to claim you have it and then not demonstrate it. So uh, it's less important to me whether you claim you're emotionally intelligent or not. It's much more important that you are emotionally intelligent and that you see it as malleable. It is is such a phenomenal opportunity for every human being to become more emotionally intelligent. And, and frankly, I'm getting a lot lately from leaders around the globe, literally around the globe. I was talking to some leaders from other morning, like four in the morning, I have no life. But at four in the morning, they were talking to me about concerns they have about emotional intelligence and resiliency of their workforce in the pandemic. And I heard it again recently with a group of folks that I was talking to from South Africa. So literally this is becoming a hot topic. How do I as a leader help my team increase their emotional intelligence on a number of fronts? So let's talk about some of the fronts. One of the most important capacities of emotional intelligence is it is the ability to stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about somebody else's needs. That is. For some folks, it's impossible. They have never, they have been conditioned to see the entire world from what's in it for me. They don't see what's the impact of my behavior on others. What are other people thinking, feeling, and doing? Now, the sad part of all of this really is that if you only think about what's in it for you, over time, it will only be about you. <laughs> because what will happen? is that people will turn away from you because they will get that you are all about yourself and not about them. So the more you think about your own best interest as your primary all behavior, probably the less you'll get what you really want out of life because all the other people around you who could help you get what you need will have abandoned you out of the clarity that you don't really care that much about them relative to what you care about yourself. Um, so long story short on this, emotional intelligence, Joe, you started this. I, you're, you're to blame. Uh, emotional intelligence is, in my opinion, the most important thing we can hire for. It is one of the greatest skills we can develop in ourselves as a lifelong pursuit journey. The more we work on it, the more we claim it as our responsibility, the more we can help other people because people will come to us because they'll see that we have great emotional intelligence intelligence, to care about them. They'll reach out to us to figure out how do we, how do they get more of whatever it is we have. Um, and so for me, I'm, I'm a perpetual student of emotional intelligence and frankly think that the most emotionally intelligent brands have the greatest felt sense among consumers. And thus they often have the greatest clarity of emotionally branded customer experiences. All right. Uh, Sarah Boyd says, howdy from Texas. Uh, good, good to see you, Sarah. 
And then my buddies from, from Sunny's are on. Good to see y'all as well. All right. So the conversation today, because Douglas Conant is not able to, to join us today, for those of you who are expecting him, we do have him scheduled for May, uh, is all emotional value. And what does it mean to deliver it? And how do you execute against it? And so here are a couple other topics that have been coming up a lot in this area for me. One is, is emotional is emotional value and emotional intelligence, emotional value delivery more important in the pandemic than it was before the pandemic? I think the answer is unequivocally yes. I mean, I think we've always wanted to deliver emotional value. It's just that the pandemic caused us all to realize we have to. I mean, it's not optional to just treat people like they're a transaction because quite frankly, people can turn on you. I mean, in good times, we don't even worry about it. We got enough customers, everything's fine and dandy. When things get bad, we suddenly value the emotional relationship we have with customers. Here's a question for you. How many of you got boodles of emails from companies when the pandemic started? I mean, my, my email box was filled with just wanting to see how you're doing. We haven't you know, been together in a long time. We know these are very stressful times. That same email template came from 50 companies many of whom I don't even remember actually transacting business with, but I assume I did or else they would have been spamming me. So uh, I must have had some kind of business relationship with them. One time I, I did the research, it was like seven years ago. I had some kind of interaction with this brand and now all of a sudden they hadn't talked to me for seven years and now they're all that concerned about me. So um, then I tracked that same journey with them. And I haven't heard from them since the beginning of the pandemic. I guess they lost interest in me now that they're probably restabilized and not extremely panicked about their future and desperately reaching out to people they didn't have the time of day for, for six or seven years. So the underlying message here is that building a emotionally valuable relationship is critical and it requires work. And if anything, the pandemic showed people that it was critical, didn't necessarily show some of them that it requires work, right? Um, I fundamentally hope that we will learn from the pandemic that all that interest we've shown one another in the past year is something we should be doing as a matter of course. So here's where I'm guilty. Like, I want to confess out where I've totally used to screw this up. I was so, I always thought that part of my value proposition was getting to the point, like getting on it, like doing it. So if we'd get in a meeting, I mean, I'd fly to New York and have a business meeting with some company. I'd walk in, I'd have the least amount of chit chat that I could have in order to get to the business at hand. Let's get on it. Um, nowadays, I start Zoom calls. I'm so much more comfortable saying, how are you doing on? What's the latest? What's the haps, right? And I honestly care, I really do. It's not just a new affectation behavior. And I actually like it a lot more than the way I used to do it. Because in that process, I'm hearing about the human condition. I was just on a, I dropped in to a meeting earlier today with a group out of California. And you know, I found out that one of the people in the room had had COVID back in November. And I heard about their journey through COVID and what they went through and how it affected other members of their family. Honest to goodness, I would not have had that dialogue a year ago. 
I would still try to end the meeting, leaving them with some of the emotional value that I have in my brand, right? The thing that I try to deliver. Never took the time in the front end to engage. And I say this to you, just asking you to think about what do you need to be doing? Because I think it matters more. When everybody's hyped up on emotion, when people are unsure and anxious and uncertain, um, gosh, you know, that's when it matters more. Drew Johnson, we miss you. Come back. Good to see you. Drew's in Colorado. I have I escaped Colorado. Drew's one of my favorite gold miners, literally gold miners. The guy goes into the earth in the United States. I didn't even know this was happening. He goes into the earth deep down in the dark cold in Colorado to mine gold. And they're doing a great, I might add. All right, let's see what else I'm getting. Uh, I was reaching out actually as I always do, but many now had the time to respond to me. Oh, interesting point by Joe. So that he's always been, it sounds like engaged and invested in relationships, but now interestingly enough, because people are emotional, right? And they have time. I mean, I think they have to be emotional too, right? Like I have time, you can reach out to me, I have time, but I don't, I don't have any desire. How about that? To, to respond. Um, but now I'm kind of isolated. I'm a little alone. You've always been kind enough to reach out to me. I have the time. I have a desire to reach out to you and make that, that connection. And so um, I think that the pandemic definitely drove up our desire to connect with each other. And it made us more emotionally fragile. And it enabled us to connect with each other because our nerve endings were a little closer to the skin um, and a little less thick skinned about it all, at least as far as I'm concerned in my perceptions. Thank you from Lincoln, Nebraska, Bonnie, who joins us on the live stream today. All right, a couple more questions that I tend to get and uh, let me just kind of run to those uh, on my cheat sheet. So uh, what about emotion and memory? So it's possible to have so much emotion that you block out everything. That's what, what post-stress disorder can have happen, right? You can have so much trauma that your brain is just trying to survive. And so you're not processing your emotions and you kind of black out, forget the, the event. And then if something will trigger it and then you'll have the emotional flood come out in a flashback or something like that. So it's possible to have too much emotion and it completely block out a memory. Those are extremely rare truths. The more likely thing is that most things happen in our life have no emotion and they fade into the background. So what I often do with groups is I'll say, think about a concert you attended. Think about all you attended, but what one jumps to mind, right? And when I say what one jumps to mind, normally you have one. Um, that concert that was... For me, it was Bob Seger. I'll just fess it. I'd love to just throw it in the chat. Go ahead. What, what concert uh, that you attended comes to mind? For me, it was Bob Seger. I was playing in a band at the time. And um, our band leader, uh, Hank Holloway, had broken his ankle. And I thought we were going to get to go to the concert. And then we got to go to the concert. I remember him with his cast and just going up the steps of the concert and, and, um, and because it was my bandmates and we went to the concert, 
And Seeger was unbelievable. And I swear he was just singing right to our row. Like that's what was happening. I don't care what those other people thought. That's what was happening. And we, you know, we hobbled down. We sang his songs in the van, the band van, all the way home. We played him for the next five days. You know, every time we had a practice, we were playing him into the into our practice session. All of a sudden, our set list seemed like all Seeger all the time. We should have been a Seeger cover band, for goodness sakes. The concert affected us so much. So that's my memory. It was a peak experience for me. Of all the other concerts that I ever go to, that's like one that will forever be my thing. And both mates in that three-piece band have died since. And so, uh, you know, it brings up all that joyful memory of having known Hank Holloway and Jeff Saviano, right? So there's so much in there. But it's rich with emotion, and that's why it's salient, and that's why it's top of mind. Most of our memories are charged with emotion, some with trauma, some with joy. And the key is for us to remove the traumatic emotions our customers have. Now, I'm not talking about the extreme traumas that, you know, get to the point of post-traumatic stress disorder kind of trauma. I'm talking about just the, the really irritable pain stuff that they have to go through. And if we can execute against prevent people from having that happen, then they won't remember that part of their journey with us. Now, the other key is let's nail our positive. So if I just sold you a Mercedes Benz, let me make that sale, that delivery of that car so celebratory that you cannot possibly forget what it felt like to buy your first Mercedes Benz. It's not like you just got the Mercedes Benz, you've been dreaming about it. It's a positive emotionally for you, but then everything that the salesperson, everything that the dealership did just kind of washed it away, like big whoop -dee. All right, let's go look at some of these concerts people have attended. Uh, let's see here, Pam Tillis. Oh, I've seen Pam Tillis, Charlie. I, she, she was kind of a love interest of mine. She didn't know that, but she was. And uh, I saw her much later in life. Uh, my wife, Patty, was right next to me. So uh, all was well. Um, but it was it was a great concert. Pam Tillis. Um, yeah. Let's see here. Who else do we have? Uh, concerts. Some, some, I love concerts. Too many to list. Bob Seger. Thank you. Another Bob Seger. Turn the page. Better look out. I'm about to rip into it right now. Okay. Um, the, the cool part of turn the page is I got something from Lincoln, Nebraska. Isn't that, doesn't that song start with just east of Omaha? Isn't that kind of, yeah, dark desert highway? Uh, no, something like that. Uh, okay. Maybe it'll local. Okay. I'm just, I can't, I'm going to get distracted on these song things. It gets me too excited. All right. The point of it all is that emotion is a driver of memory. So creating emotional value makes your brand more memorable to the people you serve. Where are the key moments to try to infuse emotion and memory? Arrivals, transitions, peaks and pain, and departures. Okay, that's it. Arrivals, departures, peaks and pain, and transitions. I changed the order that time. All right, so should really welcome you in a way that says you rock. Going back to the Ritz-Carlton as our example, 
their warm welcome, as they put it, is one of their three steps of service. That's when we nail it. If we say, awesome, welcome back to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. You know, it's more common that we'll say, it's good to see you. You know, it's good to see you at the Ritz-Carlton, as opposed to assuming that you haven't been here before. That notion that you're, you're back among friends. I just saw in the Culver's box the other day, you know, the Culver's fast food box, when you open it up, Culver's is a fast food restaurant. If you don't get it in your part of the country, kind of a rival of Dairy Queen, a client of mine. Um, I should think Culver's probably. All right, you open up the box and it says, you know, it's good to see you again, or, you know, it's been too long or whatever, whatever the message is, is that sort of, as you open it, there's that welcome message inside of the box that implies we're in a relationship and we're so glad you've re-engaged with us. Great time to connect with emotion. Transitions, right? I just bought your Mercedes Benz and now I got to go get it serviced. Well, that transition is an important part of us really showing you that we care about you. So I worked for one car dealer where we literally made it a requirement for the salesperson to introduce you to the service department and get your first service appointment scheduled and have a warm handoff to a real live human being in the service instead of having an email sent to you saying, hey, I'm John from the service department in case you'd like to set up an appointment, I'm available to you. It was a personal handoff, built it into the service design delivery chain, significantly higher emotional engagement, very memorable among customers. So these are the kind of things. And then the end of the experience, always an important one to own. Look, there's been a group of researchers out there who've studied this. Um, Chip and Dan Heath wrote about it in The Power of Moments, but you got to go back to the source material. And the source material is a, is a group of people like Kahneman, uh, Tversky. These are who spent careers studying peak and theory. And if you don't know a lot about peak end theory, it is the holy grail of understanding emotionality and ending moments within a customer journey. So what do they teach us? All right, let me give you the most, the most uh, disgusting example. Uh, disgusting only in the relative sense of it, just based on what we're talking about. So if you were to go for a colonoscopy, for example, according to research that's been done on this, it doesn't matter how much pain you have at any point in time, uh, let's say in the prep, uh, any discomfort you have in the prep, any of that stuff. What matters is whether or not you left pain free. The end moment in the end experience, the end moment predicts how you'll rate it. If you have any kind of procedure in a doctor's office, and let's say you have relatively high pain throughout the procedure, but there's no spike. And it's high during the procedure, but at the very end, it's all resolved. You will rate that doctor and that experience higher than if you had low pain all throughout the experience. And if at the end, it wasn't fully resolved, even if it stayed flat low, you will rate them lower because you left with pain. The ending still had pain. A low and there's a spike. It all kind of depends on how long before you get to the ending 
in order for your rating. So if the spike happens early and there's enough time and we get it under control and you end, okay, that's fine. If you have the spike late, and even if you get pretty well under control, just the, the how close the pain was to the ending, the peak end theory predicts will cause you to have a negative. So if you ever have a service breakdown, you wanna to try to build a little road ramp outside of it before the relationship ends. So you have time for it to settle down and you have time to bring it to its full completion and closure. All right, that's really what I was prepared to talk about today. Um, I am so, for all of you who engage, Beach Boys, I got a Beach Boys concert in here. Yes. Oh, I've seen them too. I feel like I'm, this is kind of a tale of way too much time spent buying concert tickets. I saved a lot of money this year, can tell you that. Though I did get into um, to watching a lot of people on live streams and, and paying artists via their live stream performance because it's been a tough year for, uh, for recording artists. But all right, so let's recap our points today. We want to, you know, at some point we talked about what is emotional value. We put it in context of psychologists Gendlin and that felt sense. We talked about the connection between emotional experiences and emotional intelligence. We talked about emotional intelligence skill set that you can develop uh, as opposed to IQ, which is a fixed phenomena. We talked about the connection between emotional value and branded customer experience. We talked about emotional value as a more needed function in the context of COVID-19. And finally, we talked about this connection between emotion and memory. And if we want to become more memorable band brands, we need to think about driving desired emotion within our brand context. That Billy Idol, oh, okay, I haven't seen Billy Idol. Now I am jealous. Thank you, Drew, for ending me on a down note. Remember the whole thing about supposedly ending on a positive? Now you make me feel bad about not having seen Billy Idol. It's not your fault. I'll own my responsibility for my emotion. Motion. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for doing this. This was fun. I mean, I normally don't do just me talking live streams. I always have guests. Got some cool people. Got some great guests coming up. Let's tell you about who's going to be on the show very soon. We got ourselves. Oh, I'm so excited to introduce you. This is great. Eric Farone was my improv comedy teacher. And I'll probably tell more about this next week. Um, but you want to talk about somebody who's memorable to me. I was, um, my father had just died and I was really in a, probably one of the worst times in my life. And I needed to do something to kind of pull myself out of this depressive thing that was going on for me. Um, and so I decided I was going to enroll in improv comedy. That makes a ton of sense, right? Like, duh. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it was amazing. Eric had studied with Second City. He owns a improv comedy club now in Denver, has owned it for a number of years. I was a second class, I think, that went through his improv training school. Uh, I was in that second class. It was amazing to me. Uh, it was life-giving, truly. And so I can't wait to share Eric Frone with you. We're going to talk about his improv comedy club in Denver called Bovine Metropolis. But more importantly, we're going to talk about how can you use improv skills in your daily life to help you emotionally connect with other people, to make you more playful, to get out of yourself and connect with others and collaborate with others. Um, the next week, we're going to have Gary Bagley on. Gary runs New York Cares. New York Cares did 
crazy good in the world uh, during the COVID uh, impact on New York City. It is the largest volunteer organization in New York City. It did, for all the boroughs, it did truly crazy, amazing things. And we're gonna talk about it as it relates to New York City, as it relates to COVID, he's definitely in uh, Stronger Through Adversity, the new book I released in November. But more importantly, we're gonna talk about volunteerism, we're gonna talk about running a nonprofit organization. And I think bigger than that, we're gonna find people around purpose. And then the following week, Roger Brooks, he's got uh, um, All American TV, uh, been on his show a number of times. I've reviewed his books, uh, endorsed one of his books, Build the Best You, Need I Say More? <laughs> I wonder what we're going to talk about that week. And then the uh, week after that, E. Katarina Walters. I call her E. Uh, she's a chocoholic. What other things can I tell you about her? Most importantly, she's a great branding expert. She worked with some remarkable brands like Sprinkler. Um, and she and I worked together for clients like Acuity Insurance um, in rebranding them and helping make sure they know how to do their brand storytelling and maintain consistency. So that's that's that in a bag of chips. We're out of time for the week. Hope you'll join us in the weeks to come. Let's do this again sometime. I'm ever so grateful that you honor me with your time. And my brand is one of gratitude, and that is not put on. Uh, I only hope that you can feel just a sliver of how much appreciation I have that you took your time with me today. We'll see you same bat time, same bat station for another live stream uh, next week with Eric Farrell.